0: and welcome to the Flail Forward podcast, a podcast of game design and amateurism. I am your ostensible host, Fred, and I am also working on a game called Wanderlust. And then if I could have everyone else introduce themselves.
1: All right. Uh, I am Karas Naur, uh, a.k.a. Car, and the game I'm working on is called Legendcraft.
2: Hey, I'm Catrice McLeod, creator of Saorsa, and yes, I acquired all of my knowledge of game design by beheading my competitors with a sword.
3: My name is Jonathan, and my current project is Cut to the Chase. My name is Gavor, and my
4: current project doesn't have a name.
3: I'm Mark, (laughs)
5: and I'm working on Praxis Arcanum.
6: My name is Rob, and my project is Ashes of the Magi.
0: All right, um, perfect. And now... Technically, we had a first recording of this, but luckily, I don't think anybody actually listened to that. Thank um, God. Thank yep. God. That was awful. <laughs> um, but that said... We're going
1: we, to flail forward.
0: <laughs> we are going to flail forward. Yeah. In, in that, we did actually have questions to introduce ourselves, but I'm not going to bother with those because they were messy. And you you can figure out who we are eventually anyway. I mean, there's a bunch of us, but you'll you'll figure it out somehow. But I do have a general intro question that I have been asking for almost as long as we've been doing this. And that question is, what was one thing you read, watched, or played, or consumed this week? And what did it teach you? Uh, We tend to go in a fairly random order, but I start out because it's my question, and I figure it's only fair. So what I played this week, I actually played the new uh, Tomb Raider game—not the new new Tomb Raider game, but the new like Tomb Raider game that came out in 2013, I think. Um, which is fun and pretty, but that's about the extent of it. It's—it has such a ludo dissonance between the like cutscenes and the actual play. Like it—it it, it feels like you're just kind of playing a character through a movie. Uh, which is a problem in, I think, a lot of, like, newer AAA video mm-hmm. games um, is that it's like, yeah, you're just kind of playing a video game, playing a movie, but there's also some added shooting sections and stuff that wouldn't really be in there.
6: Mm-hmm. But
0: there's no actual story that happens during the gameplay. And that really bothered me. I mean, it's not that I didn't enjoy the game to a certain extent. It was fun, but it wasn't the kind of, like, I don't know, it wasn't, like, Dark Souls fun or something else where all the story is kind of being told through the mechanics and the game Mm -hmm. really is the whole point and is the thing that's telling the story. Right.
5: Kind of a shallow experience. It's too bad. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I wound up with a similar thing this week. Oh, sorry. You want to say something?
6: Oh, I was, no, I was just piggybacking off of what Fred said. Um, I got started on Bloodborne again this week as my brother got it, it was on the playstation network for free and uh uh oh. he inspired me to get back on it and it was I, I haven't played it in a while but it's one of my favorite games of all time because for that exact reason that you play through it and you play the story happens as there's the cut scenes are few and far between and they're really short uh and it's a really great example of how to uh let your game's mechanics tell the story
2: yeah, I get the opposite effect. Like you know how last time I was playing like Deus Ex, mm-hmm. this time I was playing Deus Ex: Human Revolution. There's a tiny little difference between those two games' philosophy. So I didn't get super far into Human Revolution before I was like, I I'm, I'm done with this. This is this is crap.
4: Mm.
2: I. Oh. They they set up, like, such a good world in the opening cinematic is like, okay, this is, like, not just Deus Ex World, it's, like, it's the precursor to it, there's actually unique stuff going on, there's interesting things, I want to learn more about this, this is cool. First rooms, like, you start off in, like, a room just filled with, like, a, there's, like, newspapers, computers to read, like, all sorts of books lying around. And the whole time somebody is complaining, like every 15 seconds, like clockwork, if you don't hurry up and leave, like it it gets really, really obnoxious. It's like, you just showed me all this awesome stuff. I want to look at the awesome stuff. Shut up for five minutes
5: Mm -hmm. and let
2: me do this. And it just keeps going on and on and on about it. Leave the room it turns not into a walking simulator. It turns into a walking simulator on rails where you don't even get to control the walking. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, this is kind of a downward turn from what I was expecting. Hmm. And for like the first hours of of gameplay, it, it constantly punishes you consistently harsher every time you try to actually interact with the game world. Hmm. Like it really, really heavily railroads you up until like it goes through like the second set of uh cutscenes and animations and stuff, and it starts you off in the game proper, apparently, but it's like if you actually go around and talk to anybody in the opening area instead of running through and ignoring everything, it literally penalizes you by killing a bunch of hostages and then it is at you for, and it's like, well, you should have just ignored everything and did what we told you to do. And it's like, I <laughs> want to explore the game.
5: Yeah. That sounds like terrible design. Yeah, hmm. supposedly
2: it gets better, but I, I, don't, I care at this
5: point.
0: So I've I've played both De- the old Deus Ex and Human Revolution, um, uh, and I, I don't know. I have trouble. Like, I understand your problems, but I think that the first couple hours of Human Revolution teach the game world a lot better. Or, like, not the game Mm -hmm. world, but they teach the game mechanics and the game world to a certain extent a lot better. Um, It's, like, learning Deus Ex, the original game, is a chore. It is not well-tutorialized. It is messy, especially by modern, like, video game design standards. Uh, Human Revolution is not perfect. I'll, I'll definitely say that. But I think the opening couple hours that you're talking about teach the game much better and give you a much better sense of what you can do within the mechanics and what it all means within the world.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I just would have preferred it if it didn't guide me through at gunpoint.
0: I don't know if it guided you. I don't remember really being guided through at gunpoint but maybe we have different um, ways of playing and it just went against what you wanted it to do.
2: I tried to do everything as soon as I saw it, and it's like, no, you're not allowed to.
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah, I guess I'm more of the kind of player where I'm just like, okay, there's something that's supposed to be happening. I understand that usually in a video game, if it's like, yeah, this guy's going to die right now, I could go off and you know fuck around for hundreds of hours and come back and you'd be fine. Um,
2: well, but I like to kind I of go...
0: Explained. Yeah, I kind of immediately... I like to you know follow the story and kind of try and be an active participant in it and not break it as much, at least on my first playthrough. Um like I try and not break it, I guess, is
2: you yeah, know, which I is a little it. strange because that was the whole point of the original Deus Ex. It was like the thing that like I noticed in Deus Hex like one of the levels in Hell's Kitchen. It's like I thought it was all clever getting up on top of like one of the buildings by stack like collecting all of the boxes in the level and piling them up on top of one another. When I get up there, there's like a skill bonus for reaching it. And it's like, ye bastards, you thought of this. <laughs> I Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's a that's a whole
0: other discussion. And we're not a video game design podcast, so no, we, we no, don't need to not, get into but it.
2: You can cover like some stuff from there. Like you can learn from it and then Oh you certainly can. Yeah. There is a Like, as you were saying for, like, the tutorial aspect, like, it's not quite the same thing in, like, a tabletop role-playing game, but you can teach mechanics through actually playing the game. Like, introducing concepts gradually as your character levels up or progresses or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually a good idea to introduce them slowly, but Mm -hmm. to not shove them in in such a way that, they prevent you from actually enjoying the rest
6: of the game there's um there's so i i think the term for that is front loading so when you generally when you when you start off with a character if a game will try and some games will over front load all the information into the first into the character building um and like for example um Oh, it's a really good example of this. Um, Elder Scrolls. E- yeah, I was thinking. I was trying to think of a tabletop version. Tabletop. Oh,
0: um, uh, uh, Traveler does that pretty bad, actually.
6: Yeah. Okay. So that's Burning that's, Wheel. That's, oh, mm, Jesus! Burning yes, Wheel. Burning Wheel is okay. exactly the right one. Yeah. So Burning Wheel, like, is it's just full of. Um, nah. <laughs> no, it doesn't illustrate the point properly. Um it's 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 I hate to do this but it's okay, so in D&D when <laughs> when when it when it loads you up with um uh like the like a like you start playing a ranger and um a, a good example of 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 the class design is is something like ranger where you have like one thing you do at first level and then, as you gradually increase, you uh, like get access to spells and more parts of the game become relevant to you. Um, and you sort of have a little bit of time to you don't have to look through the entire rule book right away. Whereas if you're a wizard, if you're playing a wizard, then it actually does behoove you to look through all the spells at at least the first level ones and and make a choice at that point without having played the game yet and not making an informed choice.
0: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Starting out as a as a wizard in uh, pretty much every edition of D anD D is is hard. Yeah, because of all that front loading they do with it's spells. Actually,
2: more annoying in fifth edition they they simplified spells a ton, but the spells aren't listed in order of level anymore. They're li- they're listed alphabetically.
0: Yes, that. Well, I mean, there's good things about that, and there's bad things about that. Um, That's not
2: I, how you use it in practice. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if it was alphabetical by spell level. That would have been perfect.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. It just makes it hard for for people that are coming into the game new, because you're saying, "Okay, pick pick three spells. Great. What's my choice? What are my choices?" Like, Here's this fifty page section. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and it's. They, don't, they have no reference point because they haven't played before so they don't know if a d12 spell is necessarily better than the d8 spell that has this side bonus you know like the spell that does D2, like a cant- cantrip that does d12 damage is it better or worse than the spell that does d8 damage with a little bit of control on top of it and like there's no there's no they, way of knowing
5: they provide basic first level packages for starting players like I I know in 3rd edition they had that where it was like here is your starting kit of equipment mm-hmm. and spells if you right. have never played the game before is that right. still what, in What's sad episodes? about that
6: is those were universally bad. Like they made bad choices and and I, I, I you know, the Shadowrun does the same did the same thing in in Shadowrun 4th edition where they had these pregen characters that were just set up weird like like somebody who was hadn't played the game, had built them, and is delivering a set of bad choices to a new player. It's very strange. I, I don't understand why games do that sometimes.
2: They, they do have item packs, which are interesting choices, but you're only going to use about half of what's in one of them. Hmm.
0: I, yeah, I don't think there were any like spell packages that I remember for 5th edition. There were some pre-gen characters you could get nothing included in the base book but i haven't read any of the supplements i've only read the play handbook and the gm's
2: handbook
3: so i don't know okay. ivy did things like and i don't know about fourth and third but it did things like hey like cantrips include uh damage spells so no matter sort of how bad you sort of screw up your your spell picking it's like i have this damage spell which is right always available to me and um they have also uh some class um suggestions for like like it's called a quick build where you just like pick these pick this backstory Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. abilities and stuff like that and so they, they don't pick spells though you're right i haven't seen that either yeah
0: uh all right so maybe we should move on would someone else like to answer my my question
3: sure, been... I,
4: I wanted to say one thing before we go. the okay. the real the game rpg games that are front loaded tend to be the ones that are point by because they give you they tend to let you to pick any of the options from the start that's a good point. does actually somewhat filter your options at the start at least
6: <laughs> compared to a lot of
4: point by games but let's the point yeah Moving
6: on. Anyway. No that that that's a re, that's a relevant uh, that's a relevant point. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the The problem with the the D anD D one is is it's front loaded in the sense that you're picking. It's not necessarily, but, the you, but you yeah, exactly. You're picking like the full twenty levels ahead of time. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, then one thing I'd like to point out for people listening here is the thing about uh, you're having a uh, point by It's kind of a mess if you just give somebody access to buy everything at the very start of the game, as uh, Caviar mentioned. Yep. So it actually helps a bit if you have a level system or something similar so that you can progress in levels and it unlocks more point options that you can take so that you can kind of control how powerful certain things are that show up at certain tiers. It does help organize things a ton, and it helps you balance your games so much easier. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, did you just call him Caviar?
0: Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah. that's fine. Yep. It, also helps
2: He's prevent, caviar.
1: Uh, it also helps prevent analysis paralysis for new players. Mm, yeah, that is If there's hard. a bunch of choices that they can't take yep. to start out, then they're left with what they can take.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. All right well, uh, it sounds like you had an answer car uh
1: yeah, um, this week, I've continued on my saga of Skyrim, and I've oh, pretty much um identified and worked through all the all my problems with it that can be worked through um but more to the point <clears throat> to change the to change things up a bit. Uh, right before we started, I watched a BBC program called Bacchus Uncovered, ancient god of ecstasy.
6: <laughs> okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> what did it teach you? Yeah. <laughs> what did it teach you? Besides, besides about the ancient god of ecstasy, and uh, uncovering actually... his something. Yeah,
1: there were plenty of shots of like classical statues, mm-hmm. and things nice. Um, but the, I think the most. I
6: think that they mean many thing
1: penises. Yeah, several. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh the most interesting thing in it is that there are there are uh wine vats from 8000 years ago in Georgia that are directly linked to Bacchus. 8000?
2: 8, 8000. Wow. Oh. Huh. Bacchus is a down very down old here. God.
0: Yeah. Like This is like around Savannah. No, no, the country. country. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: know. I'm just fucking
0: with you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
1: Bacchus is a very old god. That would have
2: put him like at the start of like Sumerian times.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So So but what did what did that teach you? Like what do you take from that that is more general?
1: It taught well, not so much a game design thing, but a world building thing is that it's one of the most stark examples I know of of how culture evolves and how cultural facets can travel and propel themselves. Because Bacchus went from Georgia all the way to Rome.
6: Mm-hmm. And now and he's then, on. from
1: there all the way to Britain. Right. Because part of the program was this underground temple.
6: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
2: Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, uh, I like that. Like I think, I think Hermes was actually a saint for a little bit.
6: Yeah. It, uh, they recast him as Hermes Trismegistus, which, and they sort of used him as sort of like this um, figure, this wise wizard figure. Interestingly, and he was uh, akin to Thoth. Or when 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 the medieval peer- people got really bored, they dredged up a bunch of old deities and recast them as magic magicians. Uh Zoroaster, uh Hermes, Thoth, uh uh John Dee talks about that in some of his writings.
1: Well, I wasn't gonna bring it up, but since we're here, the other thing that was in this program was it went through how a bunch of things about Jesus yep. were seemingly copied from the history of Bacchus slash Dionysus. Yep. Things that I didn't yep. know about.
6: Yeah, Jesus Jesus is a conglomeration of a lot of different gods. Um, yeah. I knew uh, that. I just didn't know the Bacchus part of it. Right. Damn. Damn. Yeah, the, it the water and the wine thing is something that Bacchus used to do. And the resurrection and yeah.
2: Resurrection's like really common it's like that happened to
6: Osiris. Couple. Yeah, was Osiris was the one yeah, I was the going one. to go yeah.
2: with. I was gonna say there's yeah. there's a lot of them but Osiris. No, isn't the he?
6: resurrected after three days comes from Bacchus. No, that happened to Osiris as well. Isis put him back together after three days. Mm. Except for his penis. <laughs> How unfortunate. Damn it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. she
2: she made a new one for him.
6: I believe that's accurate.
2: We can make him better. We have the technology. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Just
0: get one of those like dragon dildos and slap it right on there. Wow,
6: I didn't know we were going to go there. All right, I was I was going to go with a bigger, stronger, harder thing. But you to the dragon
5: dildos.
2: Fantastic. I I was it, going to go to the Lust Engine
6: Seven,
1: but okay.
2: Like, I'm sorry but they are, this is Egyptian mythology. Yeah that dragon told them. Yeah that's probably what Egy- Yeah Egyptians character. had
6: weird stories man. There was one story yeah. where they had Set uh coming on some lettuce or cabbage. <laughs> that's a that's a major plot point. That's a tossed salad. Yeah that's a real tossed salad. That's true yeah.
2: Oh the the Norse weren't much better and then there's the whole Thing about like Greek mythology where you can basically boil every story down to five words. Unfortunately, Zeus was feeling horny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, or fortunately, you know, whatever. Either one. Either
4: way. <laughs> no, it's
0: usually yeah, that's
6: that's weirdly accurate. I mean, there's a couple of them that I like. So the story of Arachne, Zeus doesn't fuck anything in that one, but. Nope.
4: I don't know, that might be why Hera was upset. (laughs) 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 Picking fights. like it was Athena.
6: Yeah, it was Athena, yeah. Athena got got jealous, turned her into a spider. And then
1: this comes back to Bacchus, or Dionysus, where Zeus went and fucked this girl, and Hera got mad about it and burned her alive. So Zeus takes the fetus out of the charred remains and puts it in his thigh.
6: Like you do. As you do, yeah. Like you do. <laughs> so yeah. And then it well, but then it's birthed from his head, right? Uh, that's a different one. I think. No, that's Athena. Yeah, that's oh, we we okay, talking about Dino- Oh, genre. Dionysus. Yeah, he Dionysus. was just yeah, yeah. uh, Dionysus in his thigh. Right, right. And then D- Athena was born fully formed from his head, as I recall.
1: Man,
0: I'm just some stuff in my thighs, if you know what I mean.
6: Okay.
0: Wow. I don't know what that means either. Uh, all right. <laughs> uh, let's see. So we got Cat and Car. Anyone else want to answer my question?
6: Yeah. You can... Oh, go ahead. I so... was going to say, consider mine answered with the
3: Bloodborne thing. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So one thing I've been uh, taking part of um, on Twitter is um, <clears throat> something called April TTRPG Maker. Mm-hmm. and So just every day you answer a question about... Uh, um, You know, about being a RPG designer, maker. And one of the questions was, um, what's your, I'm saying schedule, but that's the wrong word for it. But, uh, time process. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, And, um, everyone who answered the question, um, that I read anyway, they all had day jobs, families, like just these crazy amount of commitments, just like us. Uh, and
1: speak for yourselves.
3: Well, do you do you don't have a day job?
1: <laughs> well, I have that, but I don't have a crazy amount of commitments.
3: Oh, okay, fair enough. Anyway, uh, all these designers on here, and it just made me think: like, how is there even any indie <laughs> content out there? Like, everyone is working just doing life stuff and mm-hmm. it, it uh, I guess I was impressed by the resilience of uh, game designers and game design in general um, yeah not it's really because
2: uh, it's a hobby for a I lot was, of people, they, they this is what they do for fun a lot of the time
3: yeah this is fun it's true yeah. but you know I, there's a lot of things I do for fun like paddle or hike or Mm-hmm. Uh, play sports and and uh, even make models or whatever, and and none of that stuff gets into the broader environment. Um, so it is a hobby, I get that, but the commitment to it is bigger than your normal hobby.
6: I don't approach it as a hobby. I I I approach it as art. Um, mm. I'm I'm trying to say something with ashes that I'm probably only barely capable of articulating and it's i i'm not doing it in a sense i'm not doing it because i want to i'm doing it because i can't not do it like it bothers me like Mm. i can't stop working on it like i can't i if i if i had to it would i would just consume my thoughts it's there's there's a weird there's a weird thing about what we do that 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 it's not like other it becomes, like a, other, compulsion. It becomes yeah. a compulsion but it's not like other art because like other art doesn't have the same kind of problems to solve. No. Like And I, I
3: agree this is art. Like it it's creating. It's yeah. it's it's uh something even though sometimes we use very mechanical pieces, it's it's like yeah. It's yeah, like drawing it's like, it's, it's it's like expression. Drawing. Yeah, yeah. Well
2: it's like, more interactive uh, than most forms of art yeah mm-hmm.
0: well it's it's using something to try and insight emotion and to spread ideas and concepts that you think are
4: valuable or interesting uh, yeah I'm... it's also training somebody to do the same thing for mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. which is, that's another level to this nonsense
2: And then there's all the aspects of like, having to actually understand math and all the mechanical concepts as well, which you normally don't need to do in most forms of art. Mm -hmm. Some of them you do, but not as much.
1: Plus 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, (laughs)
2: mean,
3: yeah, it's just, it's sort of amazing how, I guess, yeah, like I said, the resilience of the, the thing, art or creation. Uh, it just sort of pushes through everything else that uh, is in our lives and says, no, I'm going to take part two, even if you, you know, have a crying baby and two dogs and a job or whatever, whatever the name is, right. whatever the thing is. Do you have mm-hmm. a
6: crying baby that you're ignoring right now? Is that no,
3: happening? no, I don't. And actually, it's funny because I, I asked to set Did up. Did you on this... used
6: to
2: have a crying baby? <laughs>
3: no. Okay. But uh um, you still has
1: the baby, He's just not crying
2: anymore.
3: Yeah. Oh. Oh. Um uh, you guys cut off my train of thought, you fuckers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my life.
3: <laughs> I'm done. They I'll think about it later and I'll bring it up in some other way. Okay, cool yo. Uh Kev, where do you want to go?
5: Uh not do you really? have a thing? <laughs> Okay, cool. That's fine. Uh no. Mark? Yeah, I've got something. I actually started picking up uh, Gwent again. Um, here. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, so I, I played well, it I when it well first came out, but I don't feel like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I played it when it first came out, and um, it was, it was alright, but um, my roommate started playing it again, so I, I gave it a shot. Um, and it's not bad. Uh, they've changed some stuff, and I... What I picked up from it... So the original version of Gwent was basically like, for those who don't know, uh, you have a board of three rows and then you had a handful of cards and each card had a specific row that it could go into. Um, So it's fantasy themed, so it would be like the front row is your melee units, then the middle row is your archers, then the back row is your siege units, and then you would have a deck full of different uh, cards that fit with the rows. So you'd play a card to the specific row that was assigned to it and it had an effect that could I don't know, change the, uh, the power of all the other units on your row or affect your opponent's uh, cards on that same row or something like that. Um, and that was how the game worked. So it, it was heavily centered around there are three rows. You play units specifically to each row, uh, and each unit had a specific row. But uh, in this latest version, they actually got rid of all of that. Um, well, they, they got rid of the dependence on that system so they've hmm. now play units to this any from, role this
6: is from witcher 3 right Witcher, yeah this is yeah.
5: the it's based off of the the in game yeah.
6: card game in-game. i thought you were playing yeah. the in-game card game oh with no, no. <laughs> oh, okay
5: <But> no, <laughs> so they
4: buy it's very it's very much it's based on
5: the same game but it's a lot more deep but okay okay interesting all right, all right. so they, they fundamentally got rid of sort of the baseline that they started with and they reskinned it to be your cards can be played on any row and they have effects that change your, Mm. the the board state as a whole. Um, it was really interesting to come back to it because it's something that I'm struggling with, with my own game is, or that some of the feedback that I've gotten from my game was to take a look at some of the core fundamental principles behind it and make sure that that's really what I want to do. Um, it's interesting to see how a game like this can be successful after reskinning what its fundamental differentiating factor was. Like, this is what kind of made it work originally, made it interesting, and they just tried something new and it works. So it's it's impressive to see how how resilient the game is to be substantial changes to how the cards and the mechanics of the game work. So...
2: Hmm.
6: Cool. Uh, I've only ever played it in-game as when playing Witcher 3, and uh, um, it was terrible. Like, i <laughs> I played it, like, maybe three times. I was like, this, is, this fucking sucks. I'm not doing this. Uh, fair so enough. So, when you said I'm playing Gwent, I'm like, oh, my first thought was, why? I- <laughs> and then, so, okay, there's a whole other game that's uh, based... Okay, cool. I didn't know that. What do you think of games or
3: movies or um books that i like them that have these extra <laughs> games in them uh i can't remember what book i was reading but there's like this whole card game and they sell like a deck of cards specific to that game in that book like it doesn't exist anywhere else
6: mm. oh shit
3: um
0: i was i remember reading a like a series of young adult books each, a few years ago um and each like when you bought a book it had a booster pack of cards for that series and i think they sold other cards with it and it had a little like trading card game along with i can honestly cannot remember what that series was called um but i don't know if it's the same one
3: but i know that there was not because i i know i know this isn't that but okay but um there's the one in um oh sorry go ahead because it's not like a collectible card game; it's like here's the deck, period, and you play.
1: Hmm. Oh, okay.
6: Let's George, R-, up.
1: George R. R. Martin wrote a board game into A Song of Ice and Fire called Civez. Yeah,
6: Savas. Yeah, or Sivace or Savas. I, I, yeah, it's, yeah um, it's somebody devised rules for it eventually, so now you can actually play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like and... chess, but a lot <clears throat> weirder.
2: Yeah. Oh, they did the. Uh three-dimensional chess and star trek and there's oh, rules for that. that.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I've I've seen people play that with like, you know, the actual whole three-dimensional board and all that stuff and it just seems really weird to me. Like I don't I don't understand why they're playing it, but maybe it's fun. <laughs> I assume they're doing it just cuz they're like crazy trekkies.
6: Um Ye- yeah.
2: It might actually be an interesting game. I don't know. Yeah, it might be. I don't know the rules to it. It's just chess got the way that it is because it's surprisingly well balanced for the most part. Like, there are some things that are a little wrong with it. Like, white will usually win over black. I think it's something like 55 to 45. And there is an opening in white that you can make that will win 100% of the time if you actually know all of the potential uh, moves, which is how, like, all the computers are able to beat human players. Hmm. Because they basically figure out that one uh, hierarchy, but it's, like, you have to think, like, 20 moves in advance to know how to counteract the player kind of thing, which you can do with a computer now. You can't really do that as a player mm. so. but other than that chess is still good and has been for hundreds of years
0: yeah I, I've i definitely like I think I've played a couple of things that were tie in I mean I guess uh, well I guess tie in games are like tie in things are different than here is a um, like a, a board you know a game that was in this game and then kind of came out of it uh like the three-dimensional chess or something i don't know i mean it it, it's fine it kind of depends more on the individual uh you know merits of that game rather than like you know where it comes from but i mean that's it's certainly an easy way to at least get some people into it to be able to say oh yeah this is the the whatever card game. So it's like, oh yeah, all the fans will immediately go and buy it. Or yeah will go buy it if they want it or whatever.
6: Yeah, I'd probably I'd probably buy a Savas set if one was available. I think didn't they would they Kickstarter one? I can't imagine somebody hasn't done that, but yeah, probably um, probably, right? Yeah. yeah. But uh I, I would try it.
1: I'm yeah. I'm pretty sure there are Savas pieces on Thingiverse.
6: Yeah, there are. I'm, I'm, I'm on the board game geek site. There's like a bunch of 3D printed versions that are clearly, uh, yeah, thingverse prints. Mm, actually, oh wait, I've played
0: uh, I've played Caravan from Fallout New Vegas in real life. Oh um, really? Cool. Yeah, that's a. I actually I I really like the design of that. Like, it's a really well done little card game. I think.
2: One thing uh, to keep in mind is that when it comes to world design in general. It's usually not the big overarching things like uh, big mountains and stuff like major topography that people are interested in that makes it uh, feel realistic. It's the little tiny cultural things. And one of the biggest things is, well, what do they do for fun? Yeah. If you include in, like, a game into the book or... TV show or whatever, you've answered that question. If the people can actually play it for real, the audience can be like, not only does this feel real, it actually is real.
6: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a, a extra degree of participation in the in the world that you can that you can extract out by doing something like that. If you can, you know, it's fun. It's fun as a, as a consumer of a particular kind of media to like da- like. Put your fingers into that thing and get to mess around with it. And if if the game a game lets you do that, um, that even, you know even better. That's it feels cool. Like it feels like something you'd you could dress up for at a con or, you know, have a George R. Martin inspired game of savas where you're you're sitting around drinking mold wine and by a fire. That sounds awesome. Actually, I, I, I do that. I totally do. That's that. a, but, lot of, yeah. Yeah. A, a, a lot of Quidditch. A lot of
1: world a lot of world building is essentially reverse engineered anthropology.
2: Yep.
5: Yep. I you. yep.
2: reverse engineered and then re-engineered. You have to understand how they did it in the first place, take it apart and then rebuild it as something new using the previous things that you learned. So it's not exactly just reverse engineering, but it, that's part of it. Hmm
0: yeah cool okay, so we have an actual like topic to talk about besides just uh you know tangenting for however long <laughs> it's <been> an hour <laughs> i think half an yeah. hour hours almost well, forty five minutes or so yeah, almost right. an hour i think um
2: Tangent but, planting and... is our thing <laughs> it's it's some of our things um <laughs> it's most of our thing <laughs> it's cat's thing it's cat's thing <laughs> oh, yes.
0: <laughs> Um, but okay, so the one, so the our topic for this week, uh, actually Mark suggested this for us, was kind of help and assist mechanics, which is just you know uh, what happens when two characters in a role playing game either want to you know do a action together, uh, you know repair something together, or fight a guy at the same time, or whatever that means, or to say like I'm you know I have to do this thing. But my friend is gonna, um, you know, help, you know, tell me, oh, you can do it this way, and that'll help me, or you can, or you know, give me a boost, or whatever that would mean. Um, so I think the first thing we should talk about, because we're talking about kind of a specific set of mechanics, is when should we include these within a game, um, and what reasons do we have for putting them in there? Because from my experience, most games have something like this. Uh, you know, some are more complicated, some are simpler. Often, it's just if you have a skill, you can add, you know, uh, whatever plus ten or a dice or something to somebody else's roll if you say I'm helping them. But does anyone have any further thoughts on when you sh- or when or why you should include? Um, like helping and assisting mechanics, or is it just something that should pretty much always be in a game? I so, guess. It's, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Mark.
5: Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think the idea behind it is really to foster a sense of collaboration or creativity. Like there, there becomes a mechanic of playing the game that exists not only in in an individual, but as a table, like as, as a, a as a group, yeah, as a team. <laughs> um, and it, it, I think. If you were to consider D&D without help mechanics or or those kinds of games where you're um, sort of playing at an individual level, then you can tell the story of your character, but it doesn't necessarily matter who else is at the table with you. And once you start to include the influences of other people, then I think it, it helps to unite everybody at the table in a common way um, in solving these objectives. So, mm-hmm. Okay. So... If if you
0: want to foster some sort of you know uh, table engagement or party engagement, include that. But if you were for some reason wanting uh, characters or players to not be close together or not be in so engaged with each other or dependent upon each other, you might exclude them from your game.
5: Yeah, uh, and I think. It's it's um, became evident in my game because I, I didn't design one I didn't design a um, help mechanic mm-hmm. and my game mostly revolves around you building up your own personal character the way you want um, so it it really f- had um, it felt like the help mechanics were missing that your your you can be a, such a self contained story in your character and um, how they respond to the situations that it. Um, there's a sense of like teamwork that's missing, or a sense of telling the story together that is missing from a game that didn't have it. Um, so I think it could work if you were doing a, um, a single player like computer game, but once it hit the tabletop, I think that it was way more obvious that it was missing from a tabletop mm-hmm. game.
6: I uh, uh, was that part of the stuff you included with the um, all of the forced movement because that that's like one of the things that's really nothing puts a smile on a player's face than making faster than making a player, uh, an enemy making an enemy make a counterproductive move. Right. Like it's so fun to just to screw over an enemy in a way that's like not quote unquote obvious to that enemy. Like you didn't do damage or you didn't kill it, but like you put it in such a bad position that it's totally screwed. You Um, knocked
2: it into the kill box. Yeah.
6: Yeah. More or less. But it, it's it's such a, a joy to to sit i mean for me one of the one of the things that um fourth edition dnd was really good at was that feeling it was really designed around the team of the the striker leader defender the controller was sort of optional as far as i could tell mm-hmm. um but the that that core like triumvirate of uh heal the team protect the weak guys let the weak guys like smoke the enemies like worked really well and i think one of the um i i mean one of the classes you often hear about for about from fourth edition that people want back is the warlord which was the class that was all about like commanding the team and making it better and making it better than the sum of its parts and um,
0: but rob you can't shut somebody's hand back on
6: Shut up, Fred. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but it, it was it was. I took a lot of um, inspiration from that kind of thing, uh, and it helped me think about what kind of how good a help action should be to be worth it for a player. So, um, and I I had thought about that thing before because the. I mean, third, the third edition D&D uh, help mechanics were very bad. I mean, it was spend your entire action to give somebody else a plus two to their next action. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's a. I mean, first of all, that's just abysmally stupid mathematically because you're giving up a standard action to give somebody a 10% bonus, and then they get, there's no, in order to, for a, another action to be worth it, enough to consider for a player it has to do at least at least what they would have done with their normal action it has to have at least a comparable level of effect because otherwise mm-hmm. it's just it's it, from a game theoretic perspective the incentive isn't there to do it i and, think an exception to that is like for example
3: it's sort of unfair but if you if you were using D, and we use fifth edition where a help just gives advantage Mm -hmm. um but uh like a a wizard for example at some point might become useful useless in a fight uh, except that they can still help um but also you know you might be fighting something with a crazy armor class and uh giving advantage to the strong player won't Get you the result of at least what you can do on your own in this in a damage sense,
6: mm-hmm.
3: but it goes from no one's getting any hits to one person's getting some hits.
6: Right. See, I actually think that's bad design. Uh, um, so. Well, I, I think it's bad design in that you one you're the 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 if you're putting in a mechanic for when you are out of stuff to do where when you're out of interesting stuff, the game just has to go like, oh well, here's a consolation prize. That 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 bugs me on one level. Um the the other level it bugs me on is the if it's a high armor class character and the let's let's say let's for example let's say it's a high armor class character and you need advantage to hit and your only method of attaining advantage is if there's another active player that isn't that hasn't exhausted all their other options, you set up a scenario in which the player, you're expecting the player who hasn't exhausted their options to skip over their fun options in order to do this boring one.
3: Yeah. I think narratively or mechanically, there's value in the sense that it works, but narratively it's just garbage because there's no sort of... Yeah. um,
2: It's not even just the narrative side of things it's also the emotional impact on the players like they don't feel like they've done anything you can give them that option though so let's say you instead of just giving advantage you throw like a grappling hook at an enemy and yank it over into melee with your rogue or whatever like you've basically done something that feels kind of epic and it's like, yeah, was like, this caster that was supposed to be casting a spell, and then suddenly they're not casting a spell, and they're face-to-face face with somebody who wants to stab them in the face.
6: And who's yeah. going to be good at it. yeah, Better than you. Yeah. That's, where the thing, that's what the fourth edition Warlord was so cool, like, to play, because you would hit the enemy with your team's Barbarian. Like, that. it was so fun to be like, yeah, here, the Barbarian, who just hurt you a bunch, I'm going to make him go again. But he's gonna do more damage this time. Um yeah. and there was something that was so like viscerally cool about that that I'm I'm puzzled as to why it wasn't a core class in, in fifth edition or hasn't been reintroduced.
2: It would be very overpowered in fast. Hmm? No, they have uh, so.
6: uh
3: comparable in in the sense of um I can't think of the fighter class, but they have various subclasses in fighter that mm-hmm. are warlords, but not. I, I I don't know the name, but they sound like they do what you want, but they just don't do enough of okay. it. I think. Yeah, maybe that's
2: the case. Yeah, the subclasses yeah. are relatively small in comparison to like a full class, totally dedicated to constantly helping out their allies. Yeah,
5: yeah. to um, sort of take this in a in a bit of a different direction uh, I think a lot of the discussion is about help actions in combat but um, it mm-hmm. also extends to like narrative help or or outside of combat so um, mm-hmm. I think that in
6: uh, I sometimes you don't I mean for me those things are just better handled through narration and I, I Usually, most games will have something where two people can work on a skill together, and if they don't have that, there's probably a different issue there because they just haven't considered the, like the potential fictions well enough.
4: Yeah, well, if if you say like if people are going to try to work together outside of combat, because why would you ever not? Is basically it like right. exactly I mean, like,
2: there there actually are quite a few reasons why. Um, I've actually tackled those in mind, design for, like, helping out of combat things. Um, one of the th- examples in particular is... Actually, I should give, like, a rough idea of that. Like, the idea, if you're trying to do an action that takes multiple people, there's actually, like, so many slots it takes up for, like, a minimum and a maximum that it can take. If you don't have enough people, you basically can't do it just because... Essentially, you don't have the leverage for it, regardless of how that leverage would take place. Like, you just physically cannot do it. It doesn't matter, like, how strong you are, how competent you are, how fast, or whatever.
6: So this would be something like crewing a ship.
2: Yeah, it's like, you can't have two people crew like a full galleon. It doesn't matter how competent those two people are. They just Mm -hmm. can't be in all the places they need to be. Um, The other thing is that there's the maximum amount there as well it's like what happens if you have eight people all trying to lift a chair (laughs) you may notice that after the first two you might be able to get away with four if each grabs a different leg but past that it's like you're basically tripping on each other and getting in each other's way Mm -hmm. so one of the mechanics I added for example was for my dragons The dragons, one of the things they can take is they become, like, really, really self-sufficient. Like, they have something to prove, and they have to prove it to everybody. So anytime you have one of these situations where there's multiple slots for extra people, the dragon can count as two of them instead of one. They don't give any other bonuses. They just count as being able to fill two of these slots as if by themselves. They can do twice as much. The downside is, if you have two dragons that are both trying to do this, they end up fighting with each other.
1: <laughs> it's In great. my game, I have two kind of assist-related topics. Okay. Uh, the first is that <clears throat> uh, magic users, no matter what style of magic they're doing, <sighs> they can do it collectively but their power level, there's an overhead that they have to sacrifice. So, you know, you're not going to get in D&D terms like a third-level sorcerer and a third-level sorcerer are not going to be able to cast a sixth-level spell. They're going to get a fifth level, because that last level is the overhead of doing it together.
4: Mm. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the other thing I have isn't necessarily assisting in performing acts, it's training. Like, I have rules where um, characters can instruct each other on the various skills. And that, (laughs) that one came from a simulationist perspective of knowledge needs to come from somewhere. Yeah. And a lot of the times it has to come from outside, so I decided, okay, I'll make rules for that. Hmm. You know, uh
0: one of the games that I think has a, a good uh simple but effective like assist mechanic is Blades of the Dark, which has a really nice one yeah. where it's just yeah. yeah you can help i believe everyone takes one stress no
3: um oh no it's no, leader it's, takes the leader stress. takes the stress of the failed roles yeah yeah
0: but i think everyone suffers it's everyone suffers yeah. the consequence
3: no oh yeah no. everyone suffers the consequences yes you're right. yes everyone suffers the consequences no of I've, the best role though yeah. yeah of the best role yeah it's a nice simple
0: one but it's still like there's a reason you don't want to do that all the time or have a lot of people do it um, because it can end up piling a lot of stress or putting the entire group in a bad situation. Yeah,
6: it's a really great example of how to do it right. Mm -hmm. It's A really good example of that.
3: And because of the system itself, um, it means that it can be used within or out of combat because it just mm-hmm. the system all works the same way so it's yeah actually,
6: there's there is no in and out of combat in places yeah it's
3: equally useful if you're you know trying to get information or you know trying to kill someone
6: or yeah or stealthing i mean that's yeah. that's something that's really interesting about it is that it you can compensate for it, that it's, a, it's a game that allows you to compensate necessarily it's about thieves but allows you to compensate for members of your gang that aren't great at sneaking around and mm-hmm. you know there's the old adage that y- the rogue is only as ever quiet as the fighter yeah mm.
3: the guy walking around
6: with yeah. The yeah yeah exactly and so in, in a in a scenario like that i think it, it doesn't it, there's the, the there's not a team work mechanic it's a team like who's got the worst penalty mechanic <laughs> and and blades in the dark circumvents that really smartly mm-hmm yeah. without 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 making it not dangerous, too. Right. Really cool. that, I think yeah. that's the important part,
3: is yeah. the more yeah. su- likely you are to be successful, the more risk or, like, the cost is higher. And that's, you know, because if <laughs> the amount of stress you could gain even before you get into something just goes up. So I have that written down, too. My favorite help mechanic. I don't know a lot of them, but that's my favorite. Mm-hmm.
2: It makes sense, too, when you look at reality. Like, there is an altruistic limitation in terms of practicality for reality. Like, if you take the example of, say, there's a burning building and there's somebody trapped inside, you have 10 people waiting outside the building, one of them might go in and try to save the person. It basically turns into double or nothing. If you send, like, all ten people in, you might end up with eleven dead people instead of just one, which isn't a very good trade-off now, is it?
3: <laughs> no.
2: It's, you, uh... you, would, you would increase your chances of saving the one person, you'd have a better chance of finding them, but yeah. you also dramatically increase the chances of not everybody coming out.
3: Sorry, I was just chuckling at the darkness of your example.
2: <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting
3: could you make it a baby and a puppy.
2: <laughs> I'd rescue the puppy first.
5: Sorry, sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's perfectly okay. Uh, what what I was going to say was that uh, it's interesting because I think some of these ideas and designs have like a helpfulness that's associated to an individual their character or their skill. Um, And some of the mechanics have it associated with the act of helping. Um, So like the give advantage to your ally is just help is always manifested in the same way. Like it always has the same effect. Whereas if you did um, like a certain person makes another role and that uh, can act as part of the success or uh, one of the two dragons is, or one one of the dragons is just intrinsically better at helping. Um, that ties it back to that character. So is there a difference in terms of how that feels or what the, the sensation is when playing the game, if help is tied to a character versus to the act? I think big
3: time. Um, like I think Rob <laughs> was basically saying that with 4E where, you know, it's, feels good to be the helper, you know, whether it's healing or, you know, creating a situation that gets something killed. Um. So, yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. If that's your character, like you, you don't feel like you're playing wrong, you know, right. if, if you can't get damage, then all you can do is help. You feel like you're a failure because you're, you can't do the thing that's <laughs> helping you win. True. Sure.
0: Yeah. So the way I attempted to solve this problem to a certain extent um in the game I'm working on since we're talking about our game so much uh is in in my game like you have uh a track you have two two tracks that are important here one is your needs position which I don't need to get into it too much but it's essentially a reference point for your character's general disposition um at least in terms of this. So There's three points. If you're at the highest point, you're kind of angry and irritable. Um, And if you're at the lowest point, you're probably fairly happy and mellow and not really worried about it. And then you have the bond track, uh, which is, again, just a three-point track for um, determining the bond between two people. It, It goes weak, medium, and strong. And essentially, the way that my help and assist mechanics work is you can give someone an extra die to use on their roll if you assist them. There's no roll you make, nothing like that. You just go, okay, I'm going to help them, and then give them an extra die on their roll. However, if, for example, their, but it it will depend on whether their um, need track uh, is, if it's high, and, like, Oh, sorry. If there's a difference between their need track and the bond track, like if one of them is at the highest point, and the other is the lowest point that then incurs penalties so that um, you have to you have to then like like, oh, so if I have a strong bond with somebody, I can help them when they're feeling bad. But if I don't have a strong bond with them, I can't help them without having negative effects happen to the both of us.
2: Hmm.
0: Trying to keep that in fairly simple terms, but that's essentially how it shakes out.
2: Okay.
6: So
3: your ability I, I, to help I, is tied to your relationship. Yes. Essentially. Right. Yeah.
2: Hmm.
6: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to, I'm just trying to picture that in the game. So where narratively, I can see how it works. Mm hmm. Um, I'm still, I'm still a little fuzzy mechanically. Hmm. Okay. Uh, in, in what way? Um, in the way I'm not sure what the incentive is to help. Hmm. Uh, well,
0: okay. So I, I, again, I was trying to keep it really simple, but the incentive to help is if you do help a person, mm-hmm. um, then your bond will increase with them. Uh, And if Mm, you, like, your bond will eventually increase with them. If you don't help a person, your bond will eventually decrease. Um, And increasing your bond to the top is uh, one of the ways in which you earn, essentially, the game's XP. So, And that's generally the easiest way to move your bond up on the track and thus earn XP.
6: Okay, so there's a really... Heavily built-in incentive to to help out other people that you have a bond with already.
5: Yeah, um, okay. and actually, if it, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Mark. No, I was just saying it's really interesting. It's really neat. I like it.
0: No, oh, thank you. Um, and then one more thing I'll include is if you do like um, I was saying earlier, if like if their need track, which is their disposition or whatever you want to call it, is at the highest point, like if if they're different and thus you take um consequences of that, you then um like your uh your bond will uh, potentially change more. Uh this kind of all shakes out at like the end of a uh, the end of like one of the sections of play. So it's like uh Blades in the Dark's XP mechanic kind of for a frame of reference. Like, you know, it shakes out at a certain point, but it goes, you know, if you took these if you took these problems then it's like, oh you know you didn't know me super well, but you helped me when I was feeling really bad. So our bond will increase even more because you did that.
6: Right. Yeah, that feels cool. I mean, that feels. I mean, I know you're not going for a simulationist type game, but that feels like how how it actually works.
2: So, hmm. good question. Since you did mention there is a maximum bond level, what does doing stuff after you're at max bond level do?
4: Uh,
0: it just tips over into XP. So if okay. you're at max bond level, every time you get a plus 1 to your bond track, that just translates to XP.
2: Okay. Cool. I was just wondering if that was going to be the case or not. Mhm.
0: It's uh it's kind of like Apocalypse World's HX if you're familiar. Mhm. Mm, I'm not entirely. Uh well, so it, it does the same thing. It's a track where it goes up. I think Apocalypse World has it on a track of 4. Um I'm. I'm not certain. It's been a while since. It's been.
4: Yeah, uh, I was trying to remember too. Yeah. 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 I've
3: I've read the book, but I don't remember that specific thing. It uh, basically once you hit four, it ticks to XP and resets.
6: Yeah, it ticks to XP. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I remember that now. Yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah,
0: mine mine doesn't reset, but the ticking to XP is the same kind of thing.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But yeah, I I haven't fully implemented yet because but uh rob and then you said you had a way in which you solved this problem yeah
6: so that there was a part so when i was coming up with the first sort of ideas behind ashes like the teamwork was a really uh core part of what i wanted the gameplay to be and um the way i did that the way i centralized it is um i have a full third, of, so I have a mechanic called Advantage. What Advantage does, is it gives you bonus dice on your roll. Um, the game functions off a dice pool system, and uh, the Advantage dice are d6s, whereas the normal dice you roll are d10s, and that's mainly to differentiate them visually when you're rolling. Um, they have they have the same effect on the outcome. The thing about Advantage dice is, is you can Um, as as a member of a team, you can stack them on on an enemy and then let a team member use them uh, or you can use them. So if a team member is not in a position to actually take advantage of your sneaky trick, for example, um, then you can go ahead and use it yourself. Uh, A lot of games have setup actions, uh, but then the setup action can be wasted um and that was something that bothered me uh, enough to try and devise a way around it um and but the 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 main thing about the setup actions the reason they're useful is because they shift the bell curve of average success uh, the like the mean number of power you generate on a roll they can shift it up quite significantly <laughs> Uh, and so there are times when it becomes a better option to actually stack advantage on an enemy than attack it yourself. Um, and since any player, all 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 the players are able to do this thing, um, it becomes another good option. And in in playtesting, it actually has come up many times when the players go, "Ooh, hmm, I this guy's weak. This, you know he's not very this this target is not very smart. But let me try and." but he's tough and let me ta- stack some advantage on him and then let somebody else take advantage of, like the best attacker take advantage of it. And it's the, the first time it happened, like the players saw how devastating it could be. And then it became part of the repertoire going forward. And so I'm, I'm happy with that mechanic as it sits because it's, it's not, it doesn't, it can't take out an enemy by itself, but it's good enough that it becomes, a choice as to whether you're actually going to attack or build advantage.
5: Hmm. You you would forsake the role that you would normally do to deal damage in the interest of hopefully getting a better success later. It's it
6: it it does it has two effects. So so because it's a dice pool system, the your accuracy and damage are pretty much rolled into the same role. And so um, anything that can improve your accuracy, like your chances to actually affect the target, uh, the more you get, the more damage you can do. So not only are you helping your ally hit, but you're helping them do more damage as well. And so you can actually, because it's, it's a threshold system, so you're trying to generate a certain amount of power, let's say the average you generate is six, let's say. And the enemy threshold is four. So if you know you're you're going to get about six, and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to do two hits of damage to this guy, and then my friend's also going to do two hits of damage to this guy. <clears throat> However, if you stack two, if you attack him with uh, let's uh, trickery, right, and you stack advantage on him, you've put two advantage dice on him. Those two advantage dice can potentially turn into four power. So okay. instead of doing a hit uh, of two damage and another hit of two damage, if you use your action to build advantage, you can potentially do a hit of six damage.
5: That's, so you, you basically overcome the barrier once instead of yeah. having to overcome that static barrier twice. From Correct. So the, the trickery move has no other effect other than to put the dice on? Uh,
6: no, that's one of the things it can do. Trickery can also force... So when you're using trickery um i think i've rewritten this since you you last looked at it but the way trickery works now is that if you get your basic success you declare something that the enemy knows to be true which is a lie and so you can use that to and then the fiction of your advantage however you're taking advantage of that lie determines what scenarios you can use that advantage in so if you say like oh i'm going to trick my trick that enemy into thinking i'm the bigger threat here and then they'll focus on me and then my friend can flank hit them on the flank right and then that would be an example of of it turning into damage or you could say like i'm going to trick that enemy into moving forward cuz i'm going to turn my back to them right and they're going to and then then that turns into forced movement instead so you can with trickery it has two major effects it's like forced movement and advantage and you can pick whatever you want
5: it's awesome I like the fact that you explain the addition of the dice um, through a narrative action as well. Like it's <clears throat> your, your opponent believes something to be true. So these dice exist on him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause the last playtest
6: I ran, like people were using the move, but it, it, there were times when it felt like disconnected enough that it bothered me. And so I went back to the drawing board was like, okay, let me see what I can do here. So let me me try and I'll just try this. And like uh, the base effect is you declare something the enemy believes to be true. And Mm -hmm. then that then in turn informs the fiction of whether or not the advantage you put on that enemy is useful in this particular situation, rather than saying it's just a blanket advantage and you get it whenever it's more interesting if you have to sort of slot yourself into the fiction and take advantage of it in a way that an actual, fight would go Hmm. very cool Hmm. it's always more interesting when a when a
1: mechanic seeks to extract narrative out of the players rather than relying on the abstraction of you have advantage now
6: right Mm -hmm. or imposing Mm -hmm. it on the players in in some cases
1: yep uh yeah it's
6: that
0: uh it's that game loop that i think i've talked about and that i uh I stole from uh, Vincent Baker, which is uh, like fictional action, fictional action, mechanical effect, mechanical effect, fictional
6: action. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Mechanical resolution, mechanical resolution, fictional resolution. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, it's not, it's not necessarily applicable in every case, but like, it's really a good thing to have in your back pocket. Oh yeah. For when something's like going like, "Ah, this doesn't quite feel right. Well then go back to this model and see if it works better there. Mm hmm Yeah,
0: and actually, then uh, one of the things I kind of wanted to touch on um, is like, because with with the thing that I presented, and um, I'm not so certain about Rob's to a certain extent, but like, oh, talking about how should other mechanics affect like your help and assist things because usually they're kind of their own their own thing. You know, your Mm -hmm. your skill level might you know be like, oh yeah, you get an extra two you know, plus two, because you have a high skill level or something, but usually it's not like, um, you know, affected by your character's disposition, or your relationship with the other character, or anything like that. Um But, like, I, I think that for my game, where it's supposed to be like, these people are working closely together, and they're, you know, a group of people relying on each other, that's important. But is does that sound like a good idea in general? Um, or is there... Is that a very specific thing where most of the time it doesn't really matter, you know, how well they get along or how well they're feeling. And we should just go, oh yeah, because you have such skill rank, you get to add, you know, plus two dice to their role or whatever
6: it may be. Mm. I think um, I think there's something to be said for basing it on a mo- uh, an in-character motive or an in-character relationship. I think that makes it feel more real but I would caution against making it reliant on that thing um because even if you don't know somebody that well or if you're not quite motivated to help them you kill you still can do it you know you don't want to let's say I uh, help a friend move particularly <laughs> and you don't know them that well let's say but you're like ah I can move a couch for, for you know or some something for like an hour it's not gonna wreck my day but I mean, that's not a great role playing example. I know. Now, having said it,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was
6: your point is
3: that couch is going to be moved one way or another.
6: <laughs> yeah, and you're going to help one way or another. It doesn't, yeah. the, the but, but, um, a, a good example of, of what you're talking about, Fred, is, uh, in, in Riddle of Steel, where they, um, they had this, the spiritual attribute dice that if, if it mattered to your character, you got this bonus on it. Um, and that kicked in, uh, at on anything it kicked in in combat it kicked in on skill use whatever um and so you there was a baseline at which you were competent at helping and then if it really mattered to your character's arc or their their the story they had going on then you would be super good at it you would be really helpful and then people Mm. would be like oh i want to take you know if we're going to go um we're going to go kill this particular group of bandits that uh i know uh you know devastated the town where this guy's from like this other character you would you would take him along because he would be super good at dealing with those bandits you know because it's part of his story um and then in the fiction of the world it's because he's dealt with them before and knows their tactics and so forth but
0: and also just maybe fueled by anger
6: or rage or sure. revenge or whatever yeah yeah any number of those things yeah mm-hmm. actually but... what those. Keep no, going. I'm just saying, but any other character would be helpful. It's just that guy's going to be more so. Particularly helpful, yeah. yeah.
0: Actually, one of the ones that came up in my mind, and I had forgotten about it until we started talking about it, was uh, the S- Smallville game, which I think is the Cortex Plus system. Uh, I don't know if you guys are any of you guys are familiar with that. That's a deep cut. <laughs> that that's is a deep cut. Um, but the mechanic I want to talk about is, like, in the game... Uh, every kind of thing you have, every relationship is rated on a die system. It goes from D4 to D20, I think. It has all the standard polyhedral dice. Um, and so each relationship you have with another character, like each relationship your character has another character, is rated by a die type. Um, and it's not just, like, necessarily... Str- it's not necessarily strong, um, but it's just, like, how much does this kind of matter to the fiction... Uh, how tense is this? How dramatic is it? Maybe how strong it is. Um, and so every time you help them or hurt them, basically every time you interact with them, you say, "Okay, um, I'm do you know I'm gonna be trying to uh, help your character, like you know, I don't know, do something." And so I'm going to add my D6 that I get from our relationship to my die pool. Hmm. Um, and the the Cortex Plus system has its own problems but that's a very simple way of doing it where it's just like yes as our relationship gets more and more reinforced and more and more established it becomes kind of stronger and stronger within the fiction so whatever we're trying to do um, it just you know becomes more Uh, and uh, you'll have to forgive me it's been a (laughs) while since I've read I may have said something wrong but I think I've got no, that that's, right.
6: That sounds about right. I from I my, my experience with the Cortex system is mainly through Firefly, and then also the Marvel version they did. Um, mm-hmm. And the Marvel one had this thing where, like, I, which I I really dug this this piece of it. And um, the the way it worked was so what something interesting about that system is basically it just let you play the Marvel heroes. You weren't expected to create your own character. Um, And so because of that, like some Marvel heroes are more known for soloing, some are known for team ups and some are known for team, like being like team ups with one other hero and then being on a big team like the X-Men. And um, each one of those things was had a rating. And if you're in that scenario, so like when when uh, Wolverine, right, who's a a notorious loner, he's way better alone than he is actually with the X-Men like mm-hmm. he's he's better at doing everything by himself, um whereas Captain America is great at the head of the Avengers. he's way better when he's leading a bunch of people like he's personally better like his die rolls are personally better when he's in, amongst a bunch of allies and um or I think spider man had the team up one i might be mean mis- be mistaken on that, but he was good like pairing up with one other hero and sort of. Bouncing off of that hero, whereas he was weaker in a big team and weaker by himself. And oh, that was that's... a really interesting way to do it because it actually encouraged splitting up the party, which was really interesting.
0: That's a, actually that's a really cool. I I had not read that game. That's a cool little mechanic.
2: Yeah, um, interesting concept. But splitting up the party usually causes a lot of problems. Like, does it actually make it? fun for the people that aren't playing at the moment
6: oh so the way it works is the narrative just breaks into where like it just divides in like so 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 like if you're spider-man right and you get like there one it's one of the moves the gm has is to separate the players um either by like having a villain drag one of them to somewhere where the other uh heroes can't get to them or by um separating them with the environment um it's one of the moves the gm has at their disposal to like split them up and then some heroes get better when that happens um and some heroes get weaker and so there it's it's a it's less of a tactical call on the part of the players and more of a who's better in this particular situation type thing
2: hmm. i don't mean it so much as tactics based i mean like if you are intentionally building your games so that the players are getting split up, then you basically have to deal with each of those players individually rather than as a group.
5: Yeah, Which means temporarily. Your
2: base, yeah, but if you're doing this on a fairly regular basis, this sounds an awful lot like one of the biggest complaints most people have with Shadowrun, like, you know, mm-hmm. the whole thing with the Dackers. Right. When the decker's playing the game nobody else is. When okay. everybody else is playing the game, the decker is bored to tears. Right.
6: Mm-hmm. That's it's that's when we played the Marvel game, that wasn't the case only because it was way because the the way the the narrative goes is that it the players are every time an initiative round happens, the players have to pass pass initiative to either one of their own or back to the GM. So, there's not a strict initiative, and everybody has to act so it's it's not the kind of thing where, okay, you peel off um Captain America from the Avengers, and now his thing is like get back to the party, but in doing so, you don't play out his entire journey of getting back to the party all at once. You focus on him for a second, and then when he's done with his turn, it becomes somebody else's turn in that in okay. that's that's split off, yeah. Yeah, there's I oh, mean yeah.
2: That's, I was wondering how they were going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
6: there's certainly ways to handle that
0: and I certainly like there, I, especially it's hard to do like as a GM and there are some good GMing tricks um yeah. to doing that which aren't necessarily included a lot of games. I haven't read this game so I don't know how it handles it. Um but like I often will cuz uh a couple of the games I was running uh it was just kind of the players were fine with splitting the party and did it on you know did it with me saying hey don't probably don't split the party but they were like yeah we want to split the party and did it and so i would just hand npcs to people um and just be like here play this npc mm-hmm. but there uh, are many
2: other ways to handle that i don't know i just want to point out like a quote from a friend of mine because she does this on a regular basis and Boyfriend asked her, Rachel, what happens when we split the party? I die. <laughs> <laughs> because she's learned this lesson the hardly enough times.
3: does <laughs> mm-hmm. not like she learned the lesson
2: that Oh, <laughs> um, she's still prone to doing
5: it. Yeah.
2: The problem is less so that she's intentionally splitting the party now, it's more so that she has a really short attention span and wanders off on her own. <laughs> mm. <laughs>
0: well, and it, it depends on the game, too. Like, D&D, it's it's not good to split the party, but uh, the games that were running were Powered by the Apocalypse. They were like Monster Hearts and Urban Shadows, and those work much better for splitting the party.
3: Right. Well, yeah. I think... Um,
2: less combat-focused.
3: Yeah. hmm I think an interesting place for um, help mechanics would be, uh, and I don't have an example of this, but I just think it's neat, would be where two characters who have some sort of dichotomy that can't do something without the other, Uh, like if I'm a wizard and say I'm researching a certain spell and uh, somehow... Um,
1: you need the rogue to go and get you stuff for your
3: spell. Yeah, or only the fighter can, you know, bash this guy's head so I can get the right whatever information or whatever, right? And <laughs> or you need the fighter's life force. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and you somehow you got to talk him into to it. Uh, it, it it's just like um. I think it's not an easy way. Like, it's not, like, a neat and easy way. Like, I'm I'm just curious. Like, I think something that is impossible, except with the help of someone else, like, that idea interests me. Mm -hmm, I don't have, mm -hmm. like, a a way to tackle that. Uh, And it's obviously game-specific. But it's... I think it has... It's an area that makes helping interesting.
5: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. There's there's a really interesting mechanic um, It just kind of brought this to mind with uh, Headspace. I don't know if anyone's played it. Um, The Mm -hmm. idea is that every player is part of an elite operative team, um, and you're all interconnected with some uh, high-tech cyberware that you've all installed in each other's brains that allow you to um, grab the skills you need from everybody else on your team, so... I might not be able to um, shoot a gun, but if I go through this headspace and grab the knowledge that I need from my teammate, then I am able to now use that. The downside is that it comes with a risk of having their emotional baggage from whenever they've used that skill to affect my character. Hmm. So um, that's the that's the sort of help mechanic is that everyone is able to help them s- each other remotely. Um, but that it comes at some kind of a cost. Um, so hmm, I dig that. Cool.
1: Yeah. That sounds kind of like a cross between uh Neo getting Kung Fu downloaded into him and uh-huh. whenever live more eats a brain on
3: iZombie.
2: Zombie. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
3: I just I haven't had to check this game. I've heard it, but I've never played it.
0: Yeah, I I I'd heard the I heard it. I think one shot did a, a yeah one shot did a play thing of it.
4: About
0: it. Yeah, I think I heard that, and I was like, "This is interesting."
5: It's it's oh. a fantastic design. Like I highly recommend everyone to check it out just for oh some I, of the I remember designs. seeing it from it Kickstarter. It's it's really solid. Um Oh. It uses a oh. lot of the dynamics of your table, like your normal uh, conventions at the table. Like everyone's just able to speak to each other because they have the headspace, um, so you don't need to worry about like, oh, I didn't get that information because I didn't actually see things from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Everyone just knows everything that the other person is seeing and acting. Um, you, so right. So that's that's how Ashes of the Magi
6: the works too. Yeah.
1: So it's vacuuming the metagame into the game.
5: Correct. That's um, awesome, Ash. Yeah,
3: yeah, I was. That's, that's awesome. what Ashes of does. Nice. Yeah, it's, it does. Because i cool. yeah, I'm personally a fan of the meta game. Uh, like, I sh- maybe I shouldn't say a fan, but I I don't discourage it. Um, yeah. So where that gets sort of wrapped into the game, I think that's really cool because it's helpful for people who you know might be might not be fans of it.
5: So it was an interesting take mm. on the help mechanics that basically doesn't matter physically where your your uh teammate is that you're able to draw from their skills or gain their help uh remotely basically
3: I like the idea that I don't know maybe it's uh slit someone's throat but the possible baggage is like you know it was a lover at one time or something like that, and it's like you have this weird baggage after. Exactly. I I don't know the game, but just what you from what you've said, that would be amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Actually um to go back, I was I was thinking about Jonathan uh talk about like necessitating someone else to, you know, do a certain action or something, you know, to cast a, a particular spell or something like that. And I was just thinking you could... uh, The simple way to do that is to say, like, uh, you know, the game has a set of actions where it's like, these actions are impossible without somebody else. When you start one of these actions, declare one of the other characters at the table to be necessary to complete this action, and then say why, like, what you need them to do for you. And then you could also have them say, like... Why it's going to be hard for them to do that? If you wanted to introduce a little further narrative
3: complication, yeah, that actually sounds pretty good to you. Um, <laughs> like you, you gotta throw. I mean, depending on how you make your game, it, it involves throwing some some sort of mechanic. Like, what does the what does the helper literally have to do in the game, or does he just have to say he did it or whatever? Right? Like, in a mm-hmm. more narrative yeah. sense. It's it's game dependent, like I said before, but the the structure of that mechanic is sound.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So actually, with with that, because I was I kind of added that addendum to the end where you they could say, oh, there's this issue that I have with that. Um, and I uh, so talking about that, we move on to because uh, you can use like using help and assist mechanics to further set tone and like set your set up your world a little bit. So something like Headspace is a great example of something like that. Cause you have that automatic, oh, I can use their skills, but then I get this baggage. Um, I get this issue. And so you've got this this cost involved with helping and assisting. And so that, you know, it sets a certain tone. And it it's a good tone. But <clears throat> like understanding what that tone is. I think we kind of tucked on this when when we started this out and saying, you know, when should we include these? When not should, when, when should we not include these? So uh, yeah, with me, it's, it's like if, if you have a, um, that helper assist mechanic where you automatically include some sort of cost or some sort of, um, negative impact from that action, you automatically go, okay, so helping isn't necessarily all good. Um, you know, there are there are consequences even to doing things that are uh, altruistic. But if you don't include a negative consequence, um, you know, maybe it, except beyond something like losing a turn, uh, then you don't have that implication of helping somebody has a a negative consequence and is not necessarily a good thing.
2: One thing I might want to include as well, not for my game because it doesn't work this way, but for games where you have, you gain experience by doing things. Like the more you use an action, the better you get at it. You might consider that if you receive help, you don't get experience for it. Because if you're constantly being helped all the time, you mm. always have training wheels on. You never learn to get better. Like, you uh, get help... there's
1: a difference. There's a difference between one PC using the rest of the party as a crutch, and the one situation where assist was or assistance was lent.
2: Yeah, but I would say. Not... If you do it on a regular basis, it would cause problems. So if you set it so that if it's a situation you need to get something done, then assistance is perfectly welcome. But most of the time, you don't really want help unless you actually need help. Unless you need help, you shouldn't be given help. It's just kind of the general way of things. And it's probably there for a good reason.
6: Yeah there's a there's a rule my, my my when my wife was working in a nursing home uh there was a rule that you don't do anything for the um for the patients that they can do themselves because it takes away their like the their self-sufficiency and you know in a nursing home that actually is has consequences on their health like on their mental health
5: I completely agree with that. And within the context of gaming, is there like, is that the role of the GM to say this is a check that you can ask for help in or that you need to do alone? Or is that up to the player in deciding? That's what...
2: why I was saying do it as a universal blanket statement. You never get experience for using a skill that you got help with. That way, if you really want help because you need help to get this done and it's important that the task is finished and it's like, I am willing to accept help so that we can get this to work properly. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, I'm willing to sacrifice my experience for this so that we can actually make it work.
6: But there's the, the, the the counter argument to that is that that's actually how you teach somebody is you help them and, and, then when they go like, oh, okay, I get it. Then they don't need your help anymore. But they were, accru- I mean, they were accruing, if this was a game, they, they would be accruing experience during that time that you were helping them in order to get good enough so that you don't need to.
0: Yeah, I think that
6: is tied to
0: the, um again, tied to the, the kind of tone and the things you're trying yeah. to say. With yeah, your I game. think so,
6: yeah.
0: Um, because it's, I mean, you know, if if you're just you know if you're wanting to make a game about teaching and assisting and have that be a, a cool thing, then definitely. I mean, you might even want to include a a skill or an ability or something like that that will make people better at assisting or getting assistance,
2: mm-hmm. mentorship um, programs, kind of thing. Like,
1: yeah, you can be a bad teacher for sure.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah,
1: there I are think... also situations where the where the game is specifically addressing. The mere act of asking for help is worth experience
0: yeah, that too um and that's that's a very important part because uh, especially for like for a lot of people um and that that can be a it's it's a hard thing to do um mm-hmm. to ask for help a lot of times, even you know most people it's just like i and it depends you know it depends on the person depends on the action, but for a lot of people, it's hard to ask for help yeah because you'd rather be like oh yeah i can just do this right and especially if you're talking about the kind of omni-competent uh hero types that we tend to have as characters in rpgs i'm guessing that would come up more often than not
2: rpgs don't tend to have omni-competent player like characters they tend to be more specialized so i don't think it's as big of a deal like open role playing yeah there's usually an omni-competent player but if you're playing like Pretty much anything that has, like, rules to it, it almost universally sections off each character as being specialized in a given role.
0: Sorry, I, should, I shouldn't I should have said omni. Very competent. That was a bad word choice on my end.
2: Oh, okay. But,
5: Sorry.
0: Yeah, no, that was a bad word choice. But, I mean, generally, characters playing in RPGs are pretty competent. Mm-hmm. Um,
5: yeah. I mean,
0: there Usually. are exceptions to that rule. See, sure. like paranoia or monster hearts <laughs> or
6: so, warhammer fantasy second edition or you
0: like you're all lucky of the warhammer games
6: a, yeah uh, not all the warhammer games but second and first edition but i would say not third but like the 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 like you're lucky to start with a 40% chance of success in anything that's like I, super great
2: i totally disagree with uh paranoia you are obviously competent otherwise friend computer would not have selected you <laughs>
0: I, actually, I guess it depends because there's, what is it, three different kinds of, of like ways of playing that game? Um, or at least yeah, for the most even, recent edition. So I think that de- yeah. like depends.
4: <laughs> even on, in the most serious tone, you aren't a super competent agent. Not really.
0: No. Well, I, <laughs> I think part of the charm of that game is that you're supposed to not be very competent. Um, but, yeah. And I, and that is, I think, that's a really good. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm kind of sad that more games don't have like more dedicated like like a help skill or a teach skill or something like that, um, because it's it's an important thing. Like teaching is really hard. Um, I can I can say this firsthand and from like secondhand people telling me like teaching. Uh, it depends on the what you're teaching to a certain extent, but usually it's a pretty damn hard thing to do. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a specialized skill in and of itself. And, or just, you know, being able to help or asking for help is... Uh, that can be a an important part of a character's
1: arc. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, going... Even if the and... game doesn't specifically address that in its mechanics. But it... Yeah. Makes it a option for the character concept. mm
4: mm-hmm.
0: Well, and even just having that, like, that X, you know, saying every, you know, w- even when you get help, you still get XP ex- action. That kind of leads players to go, okay, why do I get XP even if they're giving me a lot of help? Um, is it because I'm kind of going against my general nature and, you know, asking for help, which it gives me experience as a person, or is it just, you know they're helping me through this thing I don't really understand so I'm just gaining experience skill wise based on my new found understanding of this
2: well you don't have to do it in like all or nothing like let's say you have a game where it's based out of a certain amount of experience given at a time let's say that you If you perform the action yourself and learned it the hard way, you'd get like five experience, kind of thing, right? Let's say that if you have, uh, you ask for help, you get the one experience for the asking for help, and if you have a teacher based on their skill, you either get one to three additional experience. You're not getting, you're not quite learning as much as if you'd actually tried it on yourself, on your own, and learned. Oh, sticking my hand in—you know—the blender was a bad idea. I'm never going to do that again. I don't. I, need I can only for that, do though. it once more. Nope. <laughs> see that's the thing. So I, I, I don't know
6: if I, I don't know if I completely agree with that because you actually do learn faster if you have a teacher. Um, mm-hmm.
2: you learn, learn, yeah, and a lot of can skills. learn faster, doesn't it? Okay,
6: know? yeah, you can, so, but so, if if a, a, a game is precluding that as a possibility then it is you don't learn faster with a teacher
3: oh That's i think true. the real crux of uh what kat is saying whether she's we all agree with how it's done is that mm-hmm. the help action um needs uh risk or um a different a, a cost or a, a
6: cost, cost yeah. yeah i mean the co- yeah. the cost is that it's taking two actions to do normally what would take one i mean maybe i mean it maybe. depends That's it's all because Again, if
2: you're out of game, combat yeah. and you don't have like pressing time, yeah, you have right, basically unlimited actions.
6: Well, you do and you don't because you're still you're still having two people work on one task where they could be working on two.
2: Yeah, but generally game, speaking yeah. most yeah. the time in games, like a yeah, lot I know. of, most the, the, time of the time, you're not yeah. going to be doing yeah. two separate actions.
6: No, completely acknowledged. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that's that's the cost in the real world is that you have yeah, to yeah, have fair yeah somebody somebody there who's not doing another thing
2: yeah unfortunately we usually don't wind up in real world circumstances when we're playing <laughs> yeah. fantasy or science fiction or whatever you know or
0: pretty much anything yeah
2: yes. yeah. Um. like you come up to like for an example you're in a dungeon you come across a door well unless there's like An army of kobolds coming down that you have to fend off—you can easily afford two people to work on opening the door at the same time. Yeah, it's pretty rare that you run into a circumstance where you can't throw two people at a door.
0: Well, I think in a in a case like that, um, uh, like within most games, I include the 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 caveat or the thing that roles should only be made when. Of uh, success when, or not success, but failure is interesting. Um, you know, when it matters. Like, if you have unlimited amount of time to open a door, you're gonna open. Uh, like, don't bother rolling for a few right of shit. Right. Yeah. Um, but it should be. You know, you should have those kobolds yeah. running at you down the stairs. Or, you know, a, 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 and the problem is that that often falls on the GM to do that. To be like, yeah, you have kobolds running at you, or yeah, the guard's gonna find you in you know five minutes or whatever. Um, whereas it should be the game always kind of reinforcing that to be like, all right, if it's not, you know, if, if uh, a failure outcome isn't interesting, they automatically succeed. Who cares? Um, or to say, like, you know, to try and put something in there. Uh, Blades in the Dark does it well with its clocks. Like, it just has an outcome of, if if you fail this action, fill a clock a couple times, and then when that clock is filled something bad happens. Uh, you know, the blue coats sh- or, yeah, the blue coats Blue coats show up, yeah. or something else, you know, something else, alarm goes off, something else happens. And that is codified within the rules to, like, be making clocks all the time and make sure that you have clocks ticking so that bad things happen.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, Interesting thing that came up in what I was saying. Um, I wanted to just quickly jump in. I know we're starting to run low on time, but um, it was the idea of being like the dynamic between the helper and the helpee. And like, whether that's a a teacher student relationship or uh, two equal partners working on the problem together. Um, And I think that that creates a really interesting dynamic within the context of a help action that um, like, I uh, think, Fred, you encapsulate somewhat in your bonds. Um, it's not, there's no mechanic behind it. It's sort of like a, a linear progression. And I wonder if there's space for that, or in what kind of game would you want there to be mechanics that really work around this idea of like, you have a different relationship with people based on what their skill is versus yours. Um, so if we're two equal people, we both know. Um, I don't know, stonework, then we can build off of each other. We can feed off of each other's knowledge to accomplish our, our objective in understanding how this was built. But if you know a lot more than I do when I'm making the check and you're helping, you might be sort of an instructor to me. Um, I think that, there, that there's a lot of play. Yeah. That distinction
1: for most games is pretty crunchy.
3: What do you mean by that?
1: It's more detail than the, than most games normally want to deal with. Hmm. Uh, uh, but I, I think his
0: part of his question was: in what game, you know, should that be important, or what game should you bring that up in the mechanics? Uh, and uh, I, I,
2: I'm not sure I would, because like if it's a game that's not really about character relationships directly you normally wouldn't quantify it to that degree if it is a game that's that heavily about such you normally would go about it in another manner other than crunchy mechanics so i don't think that
0: necessarily even needs to be particularly crunchy Um...
2: even just quantifying it at all is a little bit odd for games that tend to handle that kind of thing.
1: Well, Wanderlust does it because that's part. It's really, it's relevant to its core premise, but D and D boils it all down to assistance grants advantage, and that's that's plenty for D and D because D and D doesn't care about that level of nuance, especially yeah, I, that area of nuance. Yeah. Uh, well, but one of the things is that
0: I the Wander, as as Mark said Wanderlust doesn't really address the the problem he's bringing up the uh, the difference between the like mentor mentee relationship and the two equal partners working on a problem together relationship um, mm, right and that's uh I mean that's that's a a hard thing to there's you know there's a bunch of different ways to to do that like
2: that's the thing it's like once you have this distinctive relationship like it's easy for us to understand as humans because well it's it's context sensitive we can come up with the context and just look at it's like oh yeah that's your mentor in this case trying to quantify it into a way that actually makes sense no matter how you do it there's going to be like situations where the way the rules are set up it's not going to fit in and normally it doesn't matter because well, what does being a mentor actually benefit you? Does it give you actual benefits? Does it give you benefits in a way that you wouldn't be able to just say, well, we'll just do it in what makes sense in context and leave it as that. Well,
1: also this, this question doesn't really, isn't really aimed at the relationship between two people. It's, Aimed at their respective skill levels. Right. So, unless a game is about skills, then the difference between, you know, peers and mentor mentee probably isn't going to be relevant to the design or the gameplay.
0: Well, unless, actually, so funnily enough, uh, in an earlier version of Wanderlust, I had a a different bond system, which was set upon expectations. um And, you know, one of the expectations I talked about was a mentee relationship. And I mean, this doesn't really answer Mark's question, but uh, essentially, you know, if you act towards that expectation, better things happen and that relationship grows stronger. um But, like, I mean, even if you're talking about a, a disparate piece of skills, you can still use that to build a relationship um, and have that affect kind of how the characters interact when they're making these, you know, working together actions or, you know, taking an action together at the same time, you know, uh, maybe have different outcomes for if they have a similar skill level or have a very different skill level, whatever that means within your system.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an interesting way of looking at um, I guess relationships are how the dynamics between characters um, in the game because you could take it as just like there's a, a skill gap and there's a, um, if you have any character with a skill of 6 and they're going to help a character with skill 3 it's going to be in a certain capacity or a certain benefit to one or the other uh, versus both at 4 uh, or it could be like very focused on what does that mean about the way you perceive this person. Um, It's just an interesting way of looking at relationships or skills in a certain game that isn't necessarily just you are my friend. Uh, It's really on the (sighs) mechanics of the game and how they, how they come to um, build the, the relationship, the characters form through the mechanical actions of the game.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you guys would probably agree that my game is really, really crunchy, and I even I don't see a need to make that distinction.
6: Well,
0: it's not necessarily a whether your game is crunchy or not; it's whether that's important. It's or it's a core theme within your game. Um, like you know, well, if okay, if you then, expected well, characters,
1: re- rephrase the comment. I think you guys would all agree that my game is. Rather uh, kitchen sinky. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. If we're going to coin a new phrase. <laughs> and yeah, I'm I'd... sure
4: there's a real phrase of it, but I could uh, <laughs> spent 10 minutes trying to over with No,
2: no, I, I'm going to say yours is not the kitchen sink. It's the kitchen sink in the bathroom, sink in the sink in the base. That's not <laughs> even hooked up to anything.
1: Well, either way, I, like, even though, like, I've one of the principles I've adhered to with designing Legendcraft is to include as many situations as possible. I wouldn't like I don't see a place for making the distinction between peers and mentor mentee or skill or vast skill disparity mm-hmm. in performing tasks.
0: Okay, so then you don't... I mean, that's just uh, a value um, a value judgment based on what you think is important within your game. I mean, you have obviously valued that... You obviously have a lot of things that you value as important within your game, um, but you still still said, this is not important within the game I am building. That doesn't necessarily mean that it wouldn't be important within any game or system.
1: That's true, and it may be important for a particular group but as a as a designer working on the game i'm working on i don't see a place for it
5: and i i intended the comment just as more of like a rounding out the the discussion on help mechanics if there's like how how central or how focused can you get in describing them and making that a central motivator between characters and and how the game works um i think those kinds of mechanics of describing what the relationships are between people can inform the help mechanics that exist in the game um so it's just a an idea for games that might want to focus specifically on collaboration helping each other being a team um that there might be a place for those kinds of distinctions yeah yeah uh,
2: another thing while i think of it Quickly, because I meant to say this like an hour ago, and if we're running low on time, I want to cover it before I forget. Mm. Um, this is a little bit of a derailment, but for the concept of just helping a character in general, um, you might want to consider that a lot of the time, helping is not so much actively increasing what the uh, person trying to do something is doing. Like they usually like if they have X strength. They usually don't get stronger by other people helping so much as uh, the other people helping remove complications that are present. So, if something's really unwieldy to carry, then having two people gives removes the complication that it's unwieldy. It doesn't necessarily make it uh, so much easier to carry as it is it just removes the annoying part of carrying it so same thing might actually be able to be used in a lot of other ways because if you run out of complications then adding more people doesn't really help like once something's already light to carry having more people doesn't really benefit you
5: really interesting idea if you look at it as well from like an idea of like aspects to the problem or to the situation that it could be like there's this um problem and these are all of the complications that arise due to that problem so it's unwieldy it's uh blocking your way and that introducing new people to solve the problem help you in checking off some of those complications mm-hmm. i think that's a really cool mechanical way of thinking about how help could work uh, right. So help can
0: function. Yeah. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. All right. Um, I think with that, uh, we're going to kind of close this out. However, I will give all of us here time to plug whatever website or Twitter, whatever we happen to have. Uh, and I am again, Fred. Uh, you can follow me on. I guess you can follow me on, at the house. I I so at the house and then two in Roman numerals. Uh car.
1: Oh, um yeah. Uh okay. yeah, I, there's no really place worth following me, so <laughs>
5: <laughs> Okay. Go to the RPG design uh subreddit and we'll be there. Oh yeah. Wait, something there. dumb you'll find him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, say something wrong. He'll
6: immediately correct you. It's like a summoning ritual for him. Like
2: Someone in. is wrong on the internet! Oh my god!
3: Yeah. We love you, Car.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, and Cat,
2: uh, Mine's a lot easier this time. Uh, just I made tiny URL for it, so just tiny URL Slash Sayorsa in all caps, so S A O R S A, all capitalized for Sayorsa, and there you go. That will get you to like my uh, YouTube channel where I cover all sorts of neat, useful things like these. Matt Rad, yeah, have
3: um, Jonathan here again. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at mongrelgames, and uh, you hopefully will see. Cut to the chase. Coming out soon in in an anthology. Nice.
4: Okay. Yeah. I'm. Or you can. The best way to contact me is probably looking. Is probably saying my name backwards in a mirror three times. But I'm not sure (laughs) on (laughs) that one. Really? (laughs) Yes. I have no social media
2: presence. (laughs) So I didn't need to sacrifice those children.
6: Oh, that helps too. <laughs> oh,
2: you know, I, I was concerned for that. I
6: mean, you never need to sacrifice children, but I mean, come on.
2: Yeah, you do. Nah. <laughs> I. How else are you going to summon the ice cream truck?
3: That's a good point. god. I didn't think of that.
6: <laughs> never see ice cream trucks the
3: same yeah, way. That's
2: what I fucking thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. Probably, okay. probably didn't think of that. Uh, Mark. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Praxis underscore Arcanum, um, and uh, that's probably the best way to reach me. Rad. Did you say rad or Rob? Both. Uh,
6: yeah, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter at Ashes of the Magi, or yeah, that's probably that's probably good enough. I have a website, but don't go to ashesofthemagi.com because it's barely built and has old art and old shit, and it sucks, so don't do that's that. That's
0: right, guys. Don't go to ashesofthemagi.com.
6: <laughs> <laughs> you, you can, and then you can hit me up on Facebook about how badly it sucks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, this has been another episode of Well Forward. And, uh, it's definitely been that.
6: G- yeah. Uh, good night.
3: Thank you for joining
0: us for another episode of Flail Forward. Our intro and outro music is from
6: Lie Low by the Sardo V. Have a good week and happy designing.